people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, we're here at another episode of Kidney Talk, and uh, Stephen First, my co-host, is uh, traveling the globe. So today, I'm here with Ed Spence, and uh, welcome to the show, Ed. Uh, thank you, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Well, he came all the way from New York, and he's got a fabulous story. He's going to tell us a little bit about his background, because we obviously have a lot in common, but he's also uh, very knowledgeable about the dialysis process. So, um, Ed, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my background is that um, I was a tuba player at one point, developed renal disease. Tuba, huh? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Wow. Is that instrument heavy? It is heavy. It's like carrying a lot of plumbing. Uh, but that, that, that really isn't all of it. It's uh, a little difficult to project oneself into it uh, with air and sound from your lips. But you get everybody's attention, don't you? Usually. <laughs> Usually a lot of laughter by people who don't know exactly what a tube is and that it's the most incredible instrument in the orchestra. So you were playing, I hear, at Juilliard. Uh, I went there. Actually, the the history that we're talking about today started... When I was preparing an audition for a major symphony orchestra in the United States, and at that time I became ill, and that's I think that's where we're going to start this little talk today. So this was the seventies, huh? This was the seventies, nineteen seventy-five. I actually did not know I had kidney failure; had never heard of kidney failure. I knew I had kidneys and they they could become ill, but didn't know anything about what that was like. When did you get your first transplant? And everybody, I want you to hear first transplant because there's a, a magic number at the end that's that's amazing to me and very inspiring as well. I started dialysis in 1975. I was transplanted in 1977. And I was transplanted again after a failed transplant in 77 in 78. Mm-hmm. It was around that time in 78 that I decided a career in music was not going to work for me because... <laughs> Because of neuropathy, I developed a what's called a vibrato in the tone. It's a shaking tone. Singers use it, string players use it, but brass players at the bottom of the orchestra don't get paid for doing that. Anyway, I was transplanted in 78. That kidney lasted for one year. The uh, neuropathy did not improve, and I stopped playing the tube and decided to find something else to do. I was transplanted again. That kidney, by the way, failed, as I said, in, in, after one year. That was in 79. I was transplanted in 1980, and that kidney it's failed. It's the third and, time yeah, in 1980. That one, that one failed immediately wow. because of vascular problems. Did you get, like, Buy one, get three free? No. Uh, you know, this sound, it, it almost sounds like a joke, but in the early days of transplantation, mm-hmm. immunosuppressant drugs were so ineffective or dangerous or both. Right. That you can most, take a lot of steroids, didn't you? Exactly. And most doctors, nephrologists, I won't say most, but many, were not even prescribing transplant. As a treatment, it was fairly easy to get organs or to get. Uh, a transplant. The waiting times in my case were usually less than two years 
uh, as opposed to now. You know, we're, we're far beyond Seven that Seven years here in Los Angeles. Exactly. We're, we're far beyond that now. And there are lots of reasons for it. More patients can be transplanted at, at older ages. We've got better drugs. So there's a reason for physicians to prescribe a transplant as a viable form of therapy. Anyway, to make a long story short, my 1980 kidney transplant did not make it out of the hospital. In wow. fact, I had some problems with my right leg because the iliac artery on that side had to be ligated because of surgical problems. What's ligated? It's tied. It's tied. Uh, literally a, uh, a clip has been placed across oh, okay. it. When you're on dialysis, lots of things happens, uh, happen. One of the things that can happen is that you can develop calcified vessels, mm -hmm. and I did. Uh, the surgeons started to uh, dissect those vessels, and they sort of fell apart. When everything was done, my right leg was gray and not very operable. It's fine now, though. I'm doing fine with collateral circulation on that side. That transplant failed because of technical problems, and I was back on dialysis immediately. In 1984, my brother was killed in an autom wow. automobile accident. He was pronounced brain dead. My mom and I talked about it, and uh, nobody here knows my brother, but uh, he was the kind of person who would not want to be maintained on a ventilator, especially when he isn't alive. <laughs> it makes no sense. Anyway, we decided to donate his organs. We did, and a day later, I got a call from a transplant uh, coordinator at Montefiore Hospital in, in New York telling me that I'd matched a kidney, and I turned it down. It was oh, literal, my goodness. I, I turned it down because I had just lost my brother. We were going to have a burial and didn't want to have an, or, an operation at that time. Anyway, I have a friend, a very good friend, uh, Carol, who came into the dialysis unit and talked to me and said, you know, God works in mysterious ways. This is mysterious. This is a chance for you to have a better life. And at around the same time, I found that it was a kidney donated by us that belonged to my brother. Oh, my goodness. What did you, I mean, what was the feeling that went over you when you heard that? Was it just, uh, this is what, you know, I've seen a movie made about this. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I never saw that movie. And I don't know how this was portrayed, but it was a, it, it, it was just a feeling of responsibility. Essentially, mm -hmm. I thought now this becomes a, 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 a fairly straightforward, simple equation. And I'm, I, I miss Stephen, he's my brother. But oh. this is an opportunity to turn that tragedy into something special if I dedicate myself to doing that. At that time, my job was taking care of critically injured patients and dialyzing those patients. So I was doing a lot of the dialysis in, um, in an intensive care unit in a hospital in New York. So and you were I, actually a caregiver as well. Yes. There are all kinds of funny stories where I would show up for dialysis in my unit. Every once in a while, they'd have difficult to cannulate patients put aside, and I'd just walk in, pop, 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 and, and, and do that, and then get on treatment myself. So have you been trained as like a technician or a... Well, I'm, not long, I'm no longer certified, Lori, because oh, okay. I, I, I have not kept uh, up with CEUs or anything. I've, for the last 10 years, I was involved in something else. Okay, but, but you were at one time. That's yes, how you exactly. could come in, and you could basically cannulate somebody better than anybody sure. else. At that time, technicians did a lot of things things they can't do now. And in fact, there was a grade, and I think they called, I forget what it was, but a patient care specialist. Uh, they had all these kinds of names. And you were able to do lots of things that a technician would never be allowed to do now. That, that's just a little part of the story. The key was that that transplant allowed me to do a lot of things that I would not have been able to do. Things like operate a nursing agency 
for an acute mobile dialysis company mm -hmm. uh, with my partner. And that taught me a lot about business, a lot about dealing with different kinds of people, about selling and about dealing with patients and families who have never faced this before. Because in the hospital setting, as a caregiver, you usually don't see that. That's a social a worker's job or somebody else's job. Well, you've now had four transplants, and this is the late 90s. Is yes. that uh, Was life good? I mean, you were feeling, um, wow, I can eat whatever I want, or was it still a struggle? I mean, some people well, who get transplants still struggle. Life was great. I, I have to tell you, I, I can tell you a funny story about my second mm -hmm. transplant that lasted one year. I was really ill most mm -hmm. of the time. At one point, I was walking across the street. I fell because I had no strength in my hips, and I couldn't get up, so I had to crawl across a busy street, get to the curb, and then pull up on a, on a lamppost. With this transplant in 1984, life was fantastic. I was doing anything I wanted to do. I'm a workaholic by nature, and I was working, I think, at that point, two jobs. One reason I needed, I, I did that, I needed to, to pay for the uh, sandemune. <laughs> because it really wasn't covered, and the Sandemune was costing me, if I remember correctly, about $800 a month, you know, out of my pocket. I needed to pay for that. So, uh, you know, I had all these jobs. I was just extremely happy with life. But how did it start to fail? Because I know that this fourth transplant started to fail. One of the processes at that time was to, was to biopsy kidneys, especially in high-risk patients, and I was certainly considered to be one of those. <laughs> and one of those biopsies came back showing either a, uh, a pathology with the kidney or a pathology that was native to the kidney or pathology that was caused by the sandimune. Either way, mm -hmm. there was very little that could be done about it because at that, that time there wasn't a lot really known about managing uh, sandimune. I had a toxicity from cyclosporin mm -hmm. at one time till they understood, you know, what they were doing with it. It, mm -hmm. it is a medical practice, isn't it? And yes. they're practicing on us. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's the art of medicine, mm -hmm. and it's tied directly with science, but those two things diverge from time to time and then recombine in interesting ways. I have no complaint about that. But that kidney ceased to function around 1990. And I, I started dialysis. It's interesting because I started dialysis around the, at the same time I tore a knee up. So I guess I got a two for, two for one in hospital for one thing and started dialysis uh, prior to having that re reconstructive surgery on a knee. Uh, you have your brother's kidney and it shows that it's not doing so well. How did you cope with transitioning back to dialysis? And um, I understand you have a fifth transplant, which I want to hear about. But um, what was that transition and what treatment option did you choose? Well, actually, the transition was, was easy and difficult. It was difficult because... I didn't feel good a lot. A running joke in the office was, Ed, the flu does not last for months because I felt like I had the <laughs> flu most of the time. You know, my creatinine had started to rise. It was at, at one point 4.5 and, and rising. The nephrologist was telling me, soon we're going to have to start dialysis. But I was busy with this, 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 this opportunity with this nursing agency. And that made things a lot easier, actually, because I worked all the time. And it sort of kept my mind off what might be coming up until it just sort of come, came rushing at me. And the choice was not to avoid it any longer. The choice was to become very ill and possibly die, well, definitely die, 
or to get therapy. And that therapy was dialysis. I chose, to, I chose hemodialysis for lots of reasons. I didn't choose peritoneal dialysis because my kidney transplant, the fourth one, was actually uh, placed behind my peritoneum. My peritoneum had been manipulated. I uh, didn't know anything about scar tissue. The choice was, the, the, the good choice was hemodialysis. I chose to do this in center because there was a, an enforced timeout and an enforced uh, structure that I may not have had had I done this in my own office. I could have done that. It had been very easy. I'm a dialysis company, for crying out loud. <laughs> there, was, there, would, there would have been no problem at all with me taking a machine that I personally bought and maintained and having the, 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 the woman who was nursing director and partner in the company <laughs> dialyze me. That, that would not have been So a your problem. first assignment is me. <laughs> exactly. Or one of, what, 20, 25 other nurses do mm-hmm. it. That, that would not have been a problem. I simply chose to go into the clinic because at that point, there's a break. That's no longer what I do for a living. That's me, that's private time, and I did other things when I was there. I could just hear it now. They come to dialyze the boss, and, oh, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's make sure he takes a nap. <laughs> <laughs> that, that never really occurred to me. You're probably, yeah, you're, you're probably right. I could have been mad at you one day, right? I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, you're happen. probably right. Hmm. So how long were you on hemodialysis, and how did you get signed up for a fifth transplant, and how did that come about? Well, I, I wanted that fifth transplant, I, I mean, immediately. When, when we knew that this kidney was failing, I was back on the waiting list for another transplant. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, this is probably not true for everybody, but I feel far better with a transplanted kidney. I've talked to lots of people about this, and one of the best descriptions I've ever heard was that with a transplant, the difference in life is like the difference between looking through a window with a, with a, a curtain in front of it uh, even though it, it, it may be a sheer curtain, you're still looking through a window with a curtain and with a transplant, it's like opening those big French doors and walking out into the breeze. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's a lot more than that. That's, a, that's an emotional response. I also know physiologically that if you could take the immunosuppressants out of the picture, physiologically, you are far better off with a transplant. I don't think any, any physician or anybody else will ever argue that point. And I wanted to be as good as I possibly could be physically. I had things to do, and I wanted to live a long time. So you signed up for the fifth transplant. How long did it take between the fourth and the fifth transplant? I was signed up for the fifth transplant in 1990, and mm-hmm. I was transplanted in 1999, which is kind of close to where you would expect me to be. Mm-hmm. You, know, you had to that, wait that, that almost kind of uh, seven to nine, nine years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The average wait um, time across the U.S. is five to seven. Yeah. So you probably, I suspect, may have been a little more difficult because you had exactly. higher antibodies. Exactly. And so you got this transplant, your fifth one yeah. in 1999. It's uh, 10 years now. Yes. You're very passionate about helping people uh, understand what optimal dialysis is. I know this is a short show, but uh, can you um, just tell us a little bit about some of your mission in life to help people be educated about dialysis and how it works? I I need to give a little bit of a, uh, not a history lesson, but background to make this make sense. 
for a long time, dialysis was prescribed based on almost nothing, just empirically. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have models, and one of the models that we adhere to is a model of either ure urea reduction just defining what adequacy is, or a combination of that and urea-based KTO for V. There's lots of evidence that indicates that if you don't at least meet those markers, you're not going to do very well. That evidence does not say, though, that that is all you need to do. Not only instinctively, but by looking at data from the U.S. and from Europe, it's not very difficult to discern that the best way to improve the lot of somebody on dialysis is to improve the treatment itself. Right now, what we're talking about most of the time is how best to apply it to get a minimalist um, effect from it. Adequate. <laughs> adequate. I call it minimalist because when you look at adequate, anything less than adequate, you are ill. Simply because you're not ill in a way that's easy to measure or that you're not dying at a rate that's easy to measure does not mean that you are either adequately treated or optimally treated. I think that some of those measures of adequacy are uh, factitious and false. I've heard um, some people say that it's basically when you have minimal dialysis or some of it, as they say, adequate dialysis, you're being slowly poisoned and uh, your body's not having everything removed from it. And therefore, it struggles a little bit more with, you know, the daily life, you know, uh, as, as we said, it stayed before that, you know, removing fluid and uh, toxins at the same time is complicated and you're trying to do it in a three to four hour time frame yeah. and your kidneys do this for seven days a week 24 hours a day so w what is the answer look you know if, if you think about it the dialysis treatment is in some ways far more efficient than your kidneys are at removing certain toxins a dialysis system removes urea faster than your kidneys do okay but nobody would argue that that means that dialysis is better than kidney function. Kidney function takes place all the time. One of the first things you can do then is to mimic what happens, and that would be more treatment. There's an economic model that says that's not possible. I, I would think that on dialysis, the ideal treatment, and certainly data will back me up, is to treat more often, more times per week, more days per week, if possible, seven, if not possible, six, if not possible, five. With that, you know, you probably would not need to treat as many hours per day each day, but fewer hours per day. The next step would be to take a look at that native treatment and to see is that if there's more than that, that that treatment can do. Per unit time, the idea is to get as much toxin into the drain from your plasma water space into the drain as possible. That means increasing the efficiency and effectiveness of that native treatment. Dialysis membranes, high flux membranes today are absolutely fantastic marvels. They do marvelous things. They mainly do those marvelous things for smaller molecules that diffuse readily. Bigger molecules don't diffuse uh, readily because they can be too large to fit into the pores of a dialyzer easily and sort of diffuse through that water medium that's in those pores. I like how you explained phosphorus. And, you know, phosphorus is a large molecule, but it's really a medium-sized molecule it's with small. a large 
water cap around it? Actually, <laughs> it sounds like space aliens. Phosphorus <laughs> is, is, is fairly small. It's, it's, it's much larger than urea is, but it's fairly small. What makes phosphorus a little bit difficult to deal with is the fact that it is hydrated. It has what's called a hydration shell. And that makes it, in some cases, behave like a large molecule. The, the phosphorus is so tricky, though, because if you look at a phosphate curve as you're dialyzing a patient, it reaches a bottom, and it won't go beyond that. In fact, it starts to rebound before the treatment is over. I've had several discussions with lots of people who know lots about this kind of stuff, and it seems that there's some physiologic barrier that you will not, you will not go beyond. Too little phosphorus will kill you, as readily as too much potassium, potassium will, will kill you. and probably even more efficiently. Wow. Uh, so th th there are lots of problems with using phosphorus as a measure of almost anything. It's it's a very th th they're very complex processes and relationships between phosphorus, your physiologic state, your bones, your muscles, and lots of other things. Your kidneys are the master chemists of your body, aren't they? <laughs> well, I, I, I think they're pretty good. I, I think probably I call your liver that because it does a lot yeah, more chemical liver. work. But the kidney is is a very strong second. The, the one thing the kidney does um, among several that, that's just really incredible is they, they, they seem to adapt to almost any insult and seem to be able to, to, to survive almost any insult. That's why in-stage renal disease uh, is so rare. It really is. It's, it's, in effect, an almost orphan disease. It's, 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 it's amazing that it gets as much attention as it does. Because there's 400,000 people who have kidney failure in the U.S. Yeah. And so that you're saying that's a relatively small number If you look at the population... People. Yeah. yeah, that's all you hear is, you know, there's this massive amount of people, but there's a lot of people who have diabetes and yeah. lupus and arthritis. And so very interesting point. Well, in closing, um, you know, I'm really curious. Uh, do you have any family that's been supportive? What has helped you get through all of these years of kidney disease? Oh, I, I, if I started thanking people, we'd have to have hours to do that. <laughs> but yes, my family has been supportive in an interesting way. And that is that they've never tried to straddle me or stop me with anything. They always had expectations of you, huh? Yeah. You know, yeah, isn't I've that, been, isn't I've, that important? I've been treated normally. Yeah. Isn't I've, that amazing, though? There have been, been technical people. There have been physicians. I mean, I've had the opportunity to work with people like Claudio Ronco, Bernard Cano, People uh, here in the States, Juan Bosch, you know, in our, in our industry. I've had tremendous opportunities to do things. Uh, and those have been the kinds of things that have kept me going. I coined a phrase as, our kidneys failed, not our brain. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's unfortunate, but sometimes when they hear that your kidneys fail, people have a lower expectation of you. Did you ever encounter that with some individuals? Of course. My, my first job was in a hospital where I was being dialyzed. In fact, I agreed to leave that dialysis unit so that I could work there. Uh, and those folk, except the physician, a nephrologist, her name was uh, Defilia, who encouraged me to do lots of things. I would, would not have been able to do anything I did had I listened to those people who said, no, you're a dialysis patient, you can get free money, you should go home and relax and take it and be disabled. I've had other physicians, uh, Dr. Tellus, who's done four of my five transplants, has probably been the number one physician 
inspiration in my life. I mean, the guy has always treated me like, you've got a job to do, you've got stuff you want to get done, I'm going to keep you running while you go do that. So yeah. the, the illness is secondary to you. It's always been. It, it <laughs> I know, really but it's neat been. when healthcare professionals see that, isn't yeah. it? That you're not your illness. Oh, absolutely. You, I know, but it's, uh, it's not always the case. So for people listening out there, you know, make sure that you find healthcare professionals that support you because it is. It's sometimes when you're you're down and out, you need somebody else to help see your future. Well, there's another part to that too, and that is that if you're on dialysis or on transplant, it's a good idea to tell your healthcare team, and they are your team, what your expectations are for your life, and to make sure that they do whatever it is they can do to help you achieve that because that's their job. You know, I'm, I used to be one of those people, so I can say that. I, you know, if you're not doing that as, as, a, as a caregiver, you're not doing your job. How did you find your voice to be able to do that? Because that's one of the things that I think patients may struggle with. How do you, how do you sit, do you sit down and make an appointment and have a list and say, these are my expectations? How do you get their attention? That's part of it, even on, on a far smaller scale. If you're on dialysis, for example, and you don't feel well, it's okay to say, I don't feel well, and I expect you to find a, an answer. They may not have an answer. There are times when you've used dialysis to its maximum capability, and you simply can't do anything else. They need to be honest enough to tell you that. And you, as a patient, and as a person, I'll drop that patient stuff, but as a, as a person, perhaps at that point, it's your job to say, okay, I'm where I'm going to be. I've got to deal with this, and I still have my goals. I'll achieve them, but it's just going to be a hell of a lot harder. And I'm not going to feel good all the time while I'm doing that. Sometimes, as they say these days, you have to bite the bullet and just go do it. So any um, words of wisdom uh, to close this show? Because I've learned so much from you, and um, I've had three transplants. I mean, you're inspiring. I mean, it gives uh, a lot of people out there, because a transplant's not a cure. It helps give us hope. So uh, any encouraging words or any closing words you would like to say before we wrap this up? I'll say something that I used to say to patients that I'd start on dialysis. Mm -hmm. You are not dialysis. You need this to live. Pick what you want to do that makes you happy, that makes you live, whether it's career, family, whatever it is. Figure out a way to do it. Dialysis is ancillary. It helps you stay alive so you can get there. Live your life. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our healthcare team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference.